Erica. And I'm Julianne. And this is Radical Healing. We gather stories from the Christian missionary community in Japan, where we both grew up, and talk to people about what it's like to navigate life after leaving that bubble. We interview alumni from our alma mater, the Christian Academy in Japan. We also talk to people who've had similar experiences of deconstructing and reconstructing their worldviews in profound ways. By connecting with like-minded people out there who felt silenced or alone in their experiences, we want to serve as a resource for healing. Welcome, Karen, to the Radical Healing Podcast. We're happy to have you. So today we're shifting gears a little bit. Uh, For the previous episodes, we've had uh, people from the Japan missionary community share with us. So today we're talking with Karen, who is my friend from college. We are both very involved in the same Christian uh, campus ministry while at Harvard. And we uh, reconnected recently and just reflecting on our experiences there. Um, And as an organization that played a big role in our lives, there's a lot of interesting reflection uh, to do and we've both changed a lot and so it was really cool to catch up with Karen recently and to hear her journey post-college. So Karen could you share about yourself and also include a little bit about your experience with religion growing up? Yeah thanks for having me I'm excited to talk with you. I'm Karen. I, uh, like Julianne said, I went to college with her. I was the class above her. I grew up in the church in a very evangelical family. My parents were missionaries, grew up with all of your typical sort of purity culture, evangelical sort of stuff, um, and have since grown in my reflections on those things. Um, And my family's kind of come a long way since then as well. Right now, I am living in San Francisco with my husband. I'm a high school math teacher. Um, Yeah, and I'm still figuring out my life and how to to heal from everything that the church left me with. Would you also uh, talk a little bit about like the demographics of the community that you grew up in? Because you were born and raised in the U.S., right? Yeah, I was born in Ohio um, and I actually grew up in a really rural area. Um, so I moved a couple times, um, but my formative years were spent in upstate New York in the southern tier, which is kind of like a rust belt rural area. So very white um, and relatively low income as well. So kind of a poor white community, very, you know, uh, the best way to understand where I'm coming from is yes, it's in New York state, but it is the most Trump supporting county in New York state. So that might give some context on on what uh, type of place it is. Got it. I'm actually curious, how did you decide to go into teaching and teaching math specifically? Oh, that's like a whole nother podcast. But um, the short story is I I grew up in a pretty low income community. So I was the first person from my school to go to like Harvard type school. Um, and I think going to Harvard was a culture shock for me in a lot of ways. I 
had also never thought about like race and racism as it pertains to education. But when I got to school, I started volunteering for an educational organization and working with kids in Cambridge and realized that like they had the same and worse things stacked up against them as kids in my like poor rural community, um, even though Harvard was right down the street um, and just was very struck by the and angered by the disparities in like educational experiences that I had gotten and that those kids were getting um, relative to a lot of my peers who had gone to public schools. And then I thought I couldn't be a teacher. I thought I wasn't going to be good at it. So I thought I'd do something else. So I, I didn't know what I wanted to do, went into consulting after college and realized I wanted to do something more impactful. So kind of switched to like education, nonprofit consulting. But then through that, really realized that like teachers are the heart of education and, and I really wouldn't have the right perspective on the work without being kind of with kids and in the thick of it. So I decided to switch. Math is because I I love math. And when I first went to Harvard, I started to think I was bad at math because I was so intimidated. And there was like a lot of imposter syndrome and me being a girl and being from a poor place where we didn't have high level math classes was like a big barrier for me. So I kind of ran away from it and thought I wasn't good at it and I didn't have the brain for it. And then after college realized that like all of the ways that I loved thinking were inherently mathematical and problem solving oriented and that actually I loved math and thought math was beautiful. And it was a big shame that I had been turned off from math for a while. And I thought a lot of kids might be in the same boat and they are a lot of kids are scared of math or think they're bad at it. So yeah. Anyway, oh, that's such a great story. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I'm a teacher now. Yeah. Awesome. What did you study at Harvard? I forgot. I studied econ. Okay. So not like entirely not math, but not very, not very much math, mostly like social science with a little math sprinkled in. And in terms of what I actually took, it can get very mathematical, but I didn't take those courses. Any Marxism? Uh, no, I purely like mostly took applied econ courses about like education and inequality and like global health and stuff like that. Nice. So very um, fluffy if you ask like pure economists. <laughs> mm, interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. So how did you feel about sort of growing up religious at that time, like as a child? As a child, I grew up in a pretty chaotic home, I would say, in a lot of ways. So I found structure in religion and I found like comfort in the community that was there and the the rules that existed there. And it just it felt like my life, like so much of my life was about religion. I was homeschooled in elementary school, so even the first major chunk of my life. Religion was a big part of my schooling as well. So as a kid, I I liked it. I liked being a Christian. I found it a big part of my identity. Obviously, now looking back, there are parts that were harming me or um, that were 
messed up. But at the time, I, I didn't see that. And I found it like a source of comfort and structure that I needed. So, mm. yeah. yeah. I, what was the type of Christianity that you were exposed to? Evangelicalism? Or like, is there a specific denomination that your family was a part of? Yeah, good question. Um, my dad actually was a a professor at Christian colleges. So we moved. He wasn't a, a very good professor, so he got laid off every couple of years. So we moved to a new Christian community every few years when I was younger. And so we would go to whatever church was associated with the college he was working for at the time. So we went to a Nazarene um, church. We went to a Lutheran church. We went to a Wesleyan church. And then after he stopped working at colleges, we kind of flitted around in churches that were like the like watered down version of like charismatic, um, kind of like a, a rural white person's version of charismatic, where they were like a little more expressive and didn't necessarily, they're, they're often very theologically conservative, but a little more like expressive in the, in the, the worship and the sermon um, than I would say like the Wesleyan or um, Nazarene church were. So I, I got a little bit of everything. And then I also was a, I went to camp and was a camp counselor for many years at a camp that was mostly Baptist. Cool. You got that Christian church camp experience. <laughs> yeah. And lots of different flavors. Of <laughs> yeah. Yes. It sounds like. All of the flavors. <laughs> <laughs> So now looking back, how do you feel about like being someone who grew up religious? I, I don't know. I think it, you know, everyone grows up with something, right? Like if it's not religion, it may be something else. So I don't necessarily think, I don't necessarily, I'm not mad about it um, necessarily. I, I think there are a lot of like toxic things um, in my upbringing that were often directly tied to religion. Um, but that being said, I don't know that there wouldn't have been those toxic things tied to something else had my family not been religious. So a lot for me, a lot of my upbringing and my relationship with religion as a child is like inextricably intertwined with my relationship with my parents and everything that has happened in my family. So it's hard for me to extricate the two. Um, but then, yeah, when I think about some of the messages I was sent from the church as a child, they feel disturbing. But again, yeah, it feels hard to like say whether I would have had a happier child had I not grown up religious. You know, I, I wouldn't necessarily say that because I just don't know. I feel like there's too many factors. Mm -hmm. So moving on to college, you joined a campus ministry at Harvard from your freshman year. Is that right? You joined HCFA, Harvard College Faith in Action. Oh, yeah. Um, I joined HCFA. I was recruited even before I got on the campus and was like very enthusiastic. I, I would definitely say that I... Like I said, religion was something that provided me structure and comfort and community as a child, and it played the exact same role in college. Um, I was terrified going to Harvard. I 
already had imposter syndrome before I even got to campus. I was afraid of all these stories I had heard of people being ultra liberal and hating Christians and was already prepared to be like this outlier on campus. And I was already like trending liberal in high school. So it's not like I was extremely conservative or Republican, but I just wasn't sure if there would be other Christians. And to me, I didn't know friendship or community really outside of Christianity, other than a handful of friends I had in high school who were not really religious. So I was really intent on joining a Christian fellowship. And I got a a message from a member of HCFA before I got to campus and she talked about a Christian fellowship and I was so excited. I messaged her back and she invited me to the pre-retreat, which is the retreat that the HCFA members would go on before the freshmen even got to campus to kind of prepare for the year. And I was going to go. My family's car broke down, so I was not able to go. But I was going to go to the pre-retreat before I even got to campus. I was going to go to a retreat for this Christian fellowship because I was so happy that there were other Christians there and that I wasn't going to be alone. Mm -hmm. Um, So that was like a huge source of comfort for me in a scary situation. Yeah, absolutely. So I went to a small Christian university and so we didn't have campus ministries. So is this basically like a student club kind of thing? Yes, basically. Um, It's like a student club. And for context at Harvard, almost everyone lives on campus and student, we don't have a lot of Greek life or like sororities, fraternities. So student clubs are like where you make your friends, I would say for a lot of people. So they're really important to campus life. Just, I'm, I'm curious, how did you get the message from that uh, current member? Was it a Facebook message or email? It, and It was a Facebook message. I had joined the like pre-freshman Facebook group and posted, someone had posted, Allie Wonderlick actually had posted, hey, is anyone Christian looking for like people to connect with on campus? And I had responded to it and they saw me. And so they like put me into their recruiting and HCFA has a very intensive recruiting process. So I I was part of it. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. um, Early. So I got flagged and I was I was given a handler and that handler succeeded in reaching out to me and recruiting me to HCFA. Once you joined HCFA, what what was your experience like in that community? Initially, certainly, I really loved it. And there are a lot of positives about HCFA. I did make really good friends. I felt like my faith was reinvigorated and there was this new element of like intellectual seriousness brought to my faith that I hadn't experienced before. Um, it felt like I was taking my um, like experience at Harvard and marrying it with my faith. And that was really exciting to me at the time that I could like have my cake and eat it too sort of thing. Um, and it was, it was new at the time. So I was one of like the founding members. So there was like a lot of excitement and tight knitness among that first group of HCFAers. There were only like 15 or 20 of us that year. And now HCFA regularly has like 150 plus students. So at that time we were just really tight knit and it felt like we were building something and we were doing something and it was different. And we really prided ourselves on being different from other campus ministries in certain ways. And that was like a big selling point. 
Um, so I, at that time it was, it was like my life raft, my source of community, my sense of familiarity. It felt, even though it was different from what I'd grown up with, it felt familiar. Um, and there's like some stuff we all get when you've grown up in an evangelical circle, you can say certain things and just everyone knows what you're talking about. And so that's how it felt. To back up just a little bit to share about the organization, HCFA is part of a larger organization called Christian Union, which was started in 2002, fairly recently. And it was started by a man named Matt Bennett, whose vision was to focus on the Ivy League universities, um, to build up Christian leaders there so that they could basically infiltrate the institutions of power in America and Mm -hmm. create revival in America and to bring about Christian culture on a big scale. So kind of focusing on these elites, basically, who, you know, disproportionately like affect culture and policies in America and to Mm -hmm. really nurture them as these Christian leaders. So it's not present in non-Ivy League schools. It's kind of this interesting, maybe like elite version of uh, Campus Crusade or Inner Varsity. There's more of this focus on like building up these future Christian leaders for the sake of America's spiritual revival. So did you to get that vibe when you were in it of like, you, you guys are special. Yes, I would say so. There was definitely this idea that, like I said, that we were different, that HCFA was different. We were approaching faith in a different way. And I don't know, there, there may have even been a time, I can't remember the exact nature of this sermon, but it was like talking about how Yes, God calls the weak and the looked over people, but like if if you know we're being honest, you are Harvard students, so you have this like special opportunity to like influence the kingdom for God. Um, and there definitely was, I don't know, I, I remember our first retreat was in like September of 2009, my freshman year, and we went to a supporter's uh, beach house in Connecticut for the retreat. And it was like the nicest house I had ever been in. And I remember being confused. I was like, who lives here? This house is really nice. I don't understand where are the owners. And someone told me, oh, it's a supporter. This is their summer home. And I was frankly appalled. I just didn't understand how this is not a judgment on anyone, or maybe it is. I didn't understand how anyone could be a Christian and call themselves a Christian and just own a really expensive, fancy house that they didn't even live in. Um, So that was like my first indicator of the Christian union vibe was that it was kind of trying to mingle Christianity with like money and power and and trying to kind of reclaim these things for the kingdom, I'm sure, is is a lot of the language that was heard. But yes, it was apparent to us that this was part of the mission and part of the goal. And it was also very influenced by Reformed theology, too. So I got the sense of this, like, oh, being chosen, you know, like the elect. And as Christians, we were chosen. And Mm -hmm. I mean, to be fair, 
uh, message I heard was we were chosen to bless the world. We were chosen to serve others. So it wasn't like, you know, we're chosen to wield power over others, but it was like, you know, you have this special, you know, this elect status in order to bring about, you know, positive change in the world. Pretty Calvinism. Calvinism. Yeah. It's a lot to thing. Right. That's the, that's the belief where if you are wealthy and successful, that's a sign that God favors you, right? Uh, not or no? quite, oh. but more maybe, I, maybe that, I'm simplifying. That um, salvation is specifically like humans don't have free will. We are chosen right. by God. So anything that happens to us is kind of like a choice of God. Yeah. So it's more like that, which I guess I guess if you follow it to its logical conclusion might imply that if you are wealthy and successful, it's because God gave it to you. I think I'm basing this on, there's like a a sociologist who wrote a book Mm -hmm. about the Protestant work ethic and links between capitalism and and Protestantism. So maybe he was more focusing on that. (laughs) That sounds maybe more like prosperity gospel type beliefs, maybe. Right. But I mean, he was saying like, uh, this uh, Weber, this sociologist, was basically like the some of the the roots of Protestantism are like inextricably linked to capitalism and the idea of like working hard for God and yeah. success as like yeah like success is a good thing because I think there's there's strands of Christianity that where it's like you know don't be fancy you know it's like the least of these kind of thing. Um, no, we definitely got the message that like it was okay to be fancy as long as you're fancy for God. <laughs> Hashtag fancy for God. <laughs> I like that. It's interesting because I actually, like you, Karen, I also struggle with imposter syndrome and I felt like I didn't fit into HCFA in some ways because of that emphasis on like, building leaders and I am someone who's not interested or don't have experience or like I just wasn't exposed to like kind of ambition and this like worldly ambition hmm. um being a missionary kid I you know like I don't even know how it would look like to be on a trajectory towards like you know being a person with political influence or um to be a successful business person like I just wasn't really raised with that kind of ambitious mindset and so coming into HCFA I'm like I'm not going to succeed in any worldly sense I don't think so is it okay that I'm still part of this organization like I'm not going to be uh exerting some you know influence on like policy and something like that that is so funny I want I don't know if I wonder if like that's a CAJ thing or just, you know, or like a more family thing. I don't know. But I feel like the same, like, I feel like we weren't raised to, yeah, be like a politician or something. Yeah, that's interesting. I I don't think I was ever thinking that I was going to be like a politician or a like super rich person, but I always thought maybe I could have, I could be a leader in some sense. So I kind of liked that initially because I always... I always felt like I had leadership potential or I like wanted to be a leader. I wanted to be the one like calling the shots. Mm. Um, So I kind of liked that aspect of like this leadership um, emphasis um, that HCFA had. 
Yeah, and I'm sure there's many others. I mean, most kids who are at Harvard, you know, they are, that's, you know, there are a lot of ambitious people. So it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And as a girl, I think in the church, you're not often told that like you're valued for your leadership potential. So that's also a different thought. Hmm. I'm just remembering. So when I entered Harvard a year after you, Karen, I, my first week I was just freaked out. I was just so uh, uncertain of myself and my uh, right to be there. And Mm -hmm. I uh, joined HCFA pretty early on and actually connected with one of the female leaders there. And she took me out for coffee and I was just sharing and and I was sharing that I was seriously thinking of the possibility of transferring to a smaller college because I just felt so overwhelmed. And she said, basically, if you've gotten into Harvard, it's God's will. You know, not many people have this opportunity. So, I mean, at the time I was like encouraged, like, oh yeah, this is part of God's plan for my life and I should be grateful and I should just, yeah, move forward with this. But now I'm like, mm, my life could have been great too if I had gone to a private school, you know, smaller school. And in many ways, I probably would have thrived better in a smaller place. But having this sense like, wow, like I am a chosen one. Like mm-hmm. <laughs> I am a Christian at Harvard. I am mm-hmm. one of the double elect- chosen. Yeah. <laughs> so. You were a leader in HCFA. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, I was an early leader. Um, Like I said, I love to jump in. I love to be in active leadership positions. Um, I talk a lot, which I was told a lot in HCFA as a side note. And so I stepped into leadership early. I was excited by the possibility of like forming things. So I was a leader in a bunch of areas. I led, um, I was an assistant Bible course leader for freshmen. I started the women's ministry in HCFA. So um, we started having like social events and things catered specifically towards women. I started, we ran a, a, a like section of HCFA called the Campus Kindness Club, which is an adorable name where we would just do like random acts of kindness on campus. So we would deliver people like cookies and write encouraging notes during finals and all sorts of stuff like that. And then in my later years of HCFA, I was the like ops um, director, uh, which is one of the executive positions, I guess. So I did a lot of the sort of logistical stuff, like managing the website and the email lists and the photography and and things like that. Um, And I did a lot of just a lot of like random stuff. HCFA was such a big part of my life. So I was always doing things for them. I think that was interesting. I I was glad like I had the opportunity to step up, but I definitely felt, I don't know, there were definitely times when I made myself small for HCFA because I was often told that I was like too loud, too opinionated, too talkative. Um, And I quickly found out that HCFA HCFA had a model where um, each, I forget what they called them, each like uh, 
subcommittee had to be headed by a man and a woman, and the president could only be a man. Um, and I found that out pretty early and was pretty upset by it um, and, like, spoke strongly uh, against it. And, like, I don't know, really had a problem with that. They did eventually change the policy. But I think I definitely turned some people off by being, like, just mad about that and feeling like it, like I was being told that your leadership stops somewhere because you're female. And I definitely felt like because I was a leader, there was an element of I wasn't I didn't get as much discipleship or like I I wasn't as like cared for and I was expected to be better than others which is great you hold a high standard for your leaders but I think that made when I was struggling it made it harder because I felt like I couldn't like say as much or maybe I would be pushed out of leadership or questioned or told that I like wasn't fit for leadership because I had doubts or I had struggles or I was attracted to a guy who wasn't a Christian, like whatever it might have been. Um, There were definitely a lot of moments where I felt really conflicted about my leadership and had a rocky relationship with it towards the end of college, certainly. Hmm. I wonder, so HDFA theology-wise is more conservative than what I was exposed to, and I and I assume for many others as well. I'm just wondering, like, how many of us were slowly but surely influenced by this conservative uh, teachings and internalized it when it comes to things like uh, women in leadership? I I, I think. I don't know if I was aware of that rule or maybe I just kind of accepted it because I was also like fully on board with complementarianism and these biblical teachings on gender roles um, Mm -hmm. at that point. So yeah, I just wonder like how many of us were not brainwashed, but, you know, subtly, but surely kind of pulled in that direction and maybe for women particularly like made to doubt our abilities to lead for sure i remember actually i was originally supposed to go to a christian college um wheaton college in illinois and i was waitlisted at harvard and so i was enrolled at wheaton and then when i got into harvard and told my dad he was i mean there's a lot of history behind why my dad had this reaction um but he was disappointed um, that I got into Harvard because he said it's it's really liberal there. So it's going to like make you more liberal. And I was already a bit liberal. But I remember um, reflecting at some point in college and thinking, huh, I've actually gone more conservative. Um, and I think that was a big part HCFA. It was like such a big part of my life and the influences around me, like you're saying, Julianne, were so conservative theologically and uh, that often kind of goes hand in hand with being conservative politically in America so I felt more conservative for a while after starting college than I had been in high school. 
which is so interesting that it happens at Harvard. I also had people, adults, Christian adults in my life who are like, oh, you have to be vigilant about your faith now. You know, there's going to be so many like intellectual challenges to your beliefs and like, don't fall away. So coming in with that anxiety as well, it's kind of like, okay, and overcompensating a little bit for um, that and maybe going a little in the opposite direction and becoming radicalized in that sense. Like we have to stand strong. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's this, a lot of talking about Harvard and other um, uh, Ivy league universities, Christian origins, and kind of like, we need to return to the roots of these institutions. Um, like tr- full yeah. truth cannot be accessed without God. Like, Veritas, like, you know, all these people around us, they're only experiencing, you know, partial truth or maybe a twisted version of truth. But we have the full truth because we are Christians and we're also intellectuals. (laughs) Yeah. The thing that HCFA does, though, that's sneaky and smart is it on its face, HCFA says we accept people who ask questions and we interact with those questions. And, and to be fair, they, they do often interact with those questions. I remember we had, we would always have these like book clubs with the Harvard Atheist Club or so, something. It might have been called like the Humanitarian Club or Universalist Club or something, but um, where we would like debate the existence of God and we would co-host, like we hosted a debate between like Richard Dawkins and uh, I don't remember who, but it was, or Sam Harris or some prominent atheist and a Christian. And, and we would very much like intellectualize the big questions of Christianity in a way that like now they cannot be argued with because we have like philosophized the heck out of them and we are so smart and we have these answers and like we are proving that you can be smart and Christian too um and it still came along with all the same like bigotries but because it was so intellectual it felt like oh you know Christianity is this like intellectual thing that I now doubly believe I believe even more than I did in high school because in high school I had all these questions and now I can ask them and get all these answers from all these dead white guys who like had things to say about this um so I think for me it was like nice at first that I was getting this that in high school I I always ask questions I I would get like sent to the pastor in Sunday school as a kid because I would ask questions that would freak the teachers out and they like didn't know how to answer them so they'd send me to the pastor and I think people could not this people could not always like intellectually explain the answers and that bothered me so HCFA was nice because at first it was like this intellectual grappling with the questions but with the assurance that like don't worry the answer is still there we just like have a more intellectual way of answering it rather than just like you have to have faith and believe which I feel like was often the kind of simple answer I got as a kid yeah I remember having a discussion with my brother who is not Christian uh when I was uh Harvard student and very involved at HCFA. And we were talking about some theology thing. And then I was explaining to him this answer that I had heard um, in HCFA, which was this like, 
oh, well, you have to look at the original Hebrew here and it means like this. And in this context, it means this. And, and his response was like, well, how is the Christian message then accessible to everyone if you have to know all of these intricate background and know all this context? And I, I just remember like, oh yeah, like I'm having to do all of this, not jumping through hoops, but just like, presenting all of these detailed explanations to understand Christianity. And I felt like there was a lot of that. (laughs) Just, oh yeah, I'm so turned off by that now. Yeah. At the time it was like comforting because I felt like, wow, if this person who seems so much smarter than me believes this so strongly, then like, I guess it must be true. And we, we kind of idolized the, there was like, there's one staff member or former staff member of HCFA who was, who's like very smart and very well read and um, could deliver a very convincing, extremely well-researched sermon. And he just was so much better read than most of us that like, he probably gave you that explanation, but we idolized him in HCFA. He was like our celebrity Um, And everything he said, it was like from the mouth of God himself, you know? Um, And I love, I loved that, honestly. Like at first, I think I really ate it up that it was like a new aspect to my Christianity. Christianity was no longer this like simple hometown thing. It was like on the big stage. Yeah. Erica, I'm curious about your experience too going to a Christian school. I don't know much about the temperature of like, was it pretty liberal or were you part of more liberal pockets within that Christian college? I guess, I don't know how to answer that. Like, you know, depending on whose definition of liberal. Um, I think through, you know, in my four years there, um, because it was a Christian school, Um, the rebels were the ones who challenged that. And (laughs) so I think that was part of my journey of like also rebelling against Christianity. You know, it was like, we're (laughs) in the, in the way that you guys were like, you know, rebelling for Christianity, (laughs) you know, because you, you're sort of the, the minority, even though that's ironic to call Christians minority, but you know, Um, And so I feel like that, that kind of had that opposite effect on me, you know? Um, And at North Park at the time, there was a group of people who were really um, focused on talking about uh, race and like liberation theology and stuff. And so I got really into that. And then I personally got really into justifying, you know, egalitarianism or like feminism through a biblical lens. So I got really into studying, well, the original Hebrew says that actually, you know, homosexuality is not bad, uh, you know, and that women are equal to men. Like I got really into like, you have to understand the context and the history, you know, Um, which is kind of funny to like compare contrast that, um, but I, I don't know if I got that from North Park or just like reading books on my own. Yeah. I guess there, there, cause there were some Bible teachers who like, it was definitely a range of Bible teachers. There was one Bible teacher who she was a woman and she was not like super open about all of her beliefs, but she, 
we kind of talked to her like individually. There was also a group of us who, you know, we were into talking about racism. We called it racial reconciliation, which, oh God. <laughs> but, you know, like that was the thing, like we're into talking about racism and, and, and gender equality. We were not quite, quite brave enough to talk about LGBTQ acceptance. That was a little too, too much for us. Although I think people were trying to be like, you know, not homophobic, but <clears throat> yeah, that, that was my experience. That's interesting. Yeah, I I mean, I was not like complementarian. I wouldn't say I was I was still like a pretty feminist, I think I would have been called in like within HCFA in terms of what I thought about women, but I definitely think I think if I had gone to a Christian college similarly, I I tend to be someone who rebels against the like prevailing thought. So I think there's a good chance I would have stopped being a Christian in college. I would have been like, no, this is not for me. So I do think the fact that it was like a unusual thing for a Harvard student to do was like, I was rebelling against that culture almost by believing in Christianity. Um, And it was like a big part of my identity. Uh, but that's really interesting that that you pointed out that because that was the prevailing culture at your school, you almost rebelled against that, whereas we were rebelling against what was present. Right. Um, I can totally see myself in your shoes being like, oh, no, I need to <laughs> I need to become more religious <laughs> to <yeah>. fight back. <laughs> yeah. And I think yeah. there was a sense of rebelling against maybe the Christianity that we had come from too. Like mm. for me, I um, was frustrated with maybe the lack of intellectual rigor that I encountered or just even like not taking things seriously. And in HCFA, there was the Bible was regarded with such, such seriousness and such importance. And for me, that just made sense. Like if we're going to say we're Christians, like let's do the whole thing. Like let's believe the text. And um, so that kind of commitment, taking things to the, like the fullest living out like that, that really appealed to me, like Mm -hmm. rebelling against a type of like wishy-washy or yeah, lukewarm Christianity or something like it's like, yeah, I'm going to go yeah. hardcore intellectually and yeah, with my beliefs. Exactly. Yeah, I totally feel that. I felt like I had this idea that most American Christians are kind of Christian in name only. And it was gonna, like we were different. We were like really going to think about every single thing we did and question it and theologize the crap out of it and you know yeah for sure I definitely relate Julian so Karen you were also part of crew can you share about your experience with that or during the summer you participated in a crew program yeah so I did a summer project with crew crew does these summer programs they're like kind of like missions summer some are abroad some are domestic so The one I did was in New Jersey on the Jersey shore. Um, And it was kind of like a work and minister program. So there's a lot of international students who get, who come to the Jersey shore every summer to run like the seasonal businesses. And that's how a lot of them function. So the goal was like, we'll live in New Jersey. We'll minister to these like international students, befriend them, et cetera. That was fascinating. 
different from HCFA in a lot of ways. It was definitely less like quote unquote intellectual um, and more like a lot of the Christianity I'd grown up with. Like most of the people on the summer project were Midwestern. They were mostly white, but there were, there was one group of students who came from uh, University of Buffalo and one group who came from UMass Amherst were Asian. So they were like exoticized in the group. Um, and actually my like closest friend from summer project, Lily is Korean. So she had like, has like a whole set of perspectives on what she experienced that summer. But that was interesting because that's when I really started asking some serious theological questions. And we had these like staff mentors and I brought up my doubts to this staff mentor and you know, asked her a lot of like theological questions. And she, interestingly enough, had actually also gone to Harvard and was a cruise staffer at Harvard. And the way it works is halfway, half of the summer, there are crew staff there in the house, helping the students like run the house and doing ministry. And halfway through they leave and they appoint student leaders and the student leaders are in charge of running the program. And it's a way to like build student leadership and ministry. And so they like choose student leaders and this is a big deal. Um, And basically when the time came to choose student leaders, they sat me down and they told me, even though they thought I had like good leadership skills that they didn't think I was going to be able to be a leader because of my doubts. Um, And that was really, yeah, I don't know. That summer was weird because in some ways it like, I came back all fired up. I was like super Christian after that. But on the other hand, I was basically told that because I had questions, I couldn't be a leader. And there were just a whole host of other sort of flags there. There was a lot of like, uh, in the interview process, they asked me like a lot of detailed questions and they, they asked me all these questions about my history. Like, have I ever had like premarital sex? Have I ever done drugs? Have I ever had like homosexual attractions? And one of the questions they asked was whether I had ever had an eating disorder or whether I had ever had depression. Um, And I said, yeah, I had an eating disorder in high school. And they like, grilled me on that um, and were really concerned um, about like not letting me step into a position of ministry if I had anything that could like prevent me from ministering and my eating disorder was a thing that they were bringing up and actually later my little sister applied and talked about on her application she said she had that like experienced depression and they didn't let her go They didn't let her go to the program because they were concerned that like she couldn't minister if she was depressed. So I think I just got a lot of messages that summer that like you cannot be in ministry unless you are perfect. Like you cannot have doubts. You cannot be depressed. You cannot have an eating disorder. You cannot have like sexual thoughts about a human being. I don't know. It just it, at the time, I was really into it. Again, like, I, I don't know, looking back on it, I feel like weird because I was really crushed by the things they told me, but I was still really fired up and felt like I was part of a community. And yes, I need to be better. And yes, I need to overcome these things. And like, yes, I need to get over my doubts. But 
it was pretty damaging for me in the long run to hear these messages about who I needed to be and what made me capable of being a leader and what made me worth being in a program or in a church. Yeah. So it was a weird experience. I also had to do like direct proselytizing to people, strangers on the boardwalk, and I hated it. (laughs) And that was really interesting. So yeah, since then, I'm, I'm like really close friends with a girl from that project. And she became a Campus Crusade staffer for Epic, which is their like Asian American ministry. Um, and has actually since left Campus Crusade and left Christianity entirely and has, we've kind of gone through like parallel journeys in a lot of ways with our feelings and like frustrations with crew, with HCFA, with Christianity, the ways we've been like told we're not enough by the church. Yeah, so that was an interesting summer. And I remember coming back from that summer and and the the ministry fellow who we like all idolized saying that like he was really proud of me and he like noticed a big change in me. And that was like another affirmation that like I needed to suppress myself in certain ways to be like palatable and acceptable and like worth being in this community and worthy of leadership in this community. Yeah, that was a lot, but <laughs> Can can you guys explain the connection between HCFA and CRU or like what is crew again? So there's not a direct connection, but Matt Bennett, the founder of HCFA, actually came from the crew world. Um, the connection mostly is that they're both campus ministries. So Harvard has both. They have Campus Crusade as well. Um, And Campus Crusade is much larger and much older than Christian Union. So they have a lot more like programs and ministries, which is why I did that summer program with them because HCFA was a lot smaller, is a lot smaller, didn't have the sort of resources. So they're kind of just all in the same Christian fellowship world. The crew is much more established, much larger and further reaching than HCFA. That makes sense. I wonder how common it is for like, you know, applications for different things to, yeah, to ask about eating disorders, depression, or like, have you ever (laughs) doubted God (laughs) or something? Yeah, I don't know. I know another guy who got rejected for ministry because they, he said he had, he experienced homosexual attraction. And even though he believes that he should like suppress those feelings and that they're wrong they wouldn't they said no that's like too big of a risk so they ask that sort of stuff and they reject people based on it yeah so it's like (laughs) the i mean in in their way of thinking (laughs) like if you've never struggled then you're a good leader but it's like no the best leaders are people who have struggled you know so it's like you're you're putting people in leadership who are not equipped. <laughs> yeah, and I think the I think the idea for them is not even that people have never struggled, but that if you've struggled, you better have already overcome it. You cannot be in the midst of struggle. You need to be like a fully actualized human being, <laughs> I guess. Because um, once I told them that like I didn't have an eating disorder anymore, they were like, okay. Um, They just wanted to be really sure that I was not still struggling with an eating disorder. 
um, or that I was not actively asking questions about my faith. It was okay if they happened in the past. I think it shows a lot about how mental health is viewed in Christian community too, as it being like this spiritualized, like deficient, deficit, deficientness. <laughs> I don't Defi- deficit. Deficit. A, spe- uh, a spiritual deficit. Deficiency. deficiency. That's the word. A spiritual okay. deficiency, mm-hmm. and maybe like freaked out or like not knowing how to handle it or. Oh yeah, uh, just like but also keep it at arm's length. Like there's no understanding of like any kind of like chronic ongoing condition, you know? Um, I think that was, was hard for me was like understanding what is depression is like, I thought I always thought it was going to just be like a momentary thing and then it'll be Mm -hmm. gone. But it's like, no, some people have like chronic depression that actually it keeps going for years and years and years, you know, like I couldn't conceptualize that because in this like, Christian mindset it's like no you have a a temporary struggle right, right. but then god's always going to make it better you know it, you're never going to have ongoing struggles which ties yeah. back to our discussion of like ableism like a lack of understanding of like disability or anything like that yeah that's been a a very big thing in my life i in my family, the dealing of mental health. And it definitely like came up in college and in HCFA. Um, and yeah, it was pretty toxic. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> yeah. I think there's a pressure for that narrative, the like testimony narrative, like, you know, right. I was struggling, I was in sin, but I met God and now I'm healed. And victory you know and it doesn't make a good testimony story to be like I'm still struggling every day (laughs) yeah yeah and I always I my entire Christianity I had intense doubts and questions that I felt like couldn't be answered and I felt like Christians got freaked out when I asked them Um, they got freaked out or they gave me the same answers they always gave, or they would tell me to pray for God's grace. Um, I believe help thou now my unbelief sort of thing. Yeah. That was really difficult for me for all of HCFA. That was like my biggest battle was having these questions and feeling like something was wrong with me. And I just didn't understand why other people could just accept these things as true when they came so difficult to me yeah and that that was really like something that caused a lot of friction with hcfa and with crew just doubts and struggles and feeling like if i didn't get over them i was like a broken person so looking back at your whole experience what are some of the positive things that you experience from being part of these communities? The number one thing is the community. I, I still have not found like an adequate replacement for Christian community in the non-Christian world. Um, It's just, again, like you come into that community with so much already in common 
Um, and with the thing that you, you know, in theory is like the most important part of your life in common. And that in some ways can like help erase other differences or minimize other differences. So like my husband, I'm at an HCFA. Um, we have a happy marriage, despite the fact that I, he knows I'm not a Christian anymore. My closest friends are still all from HCFA. So I think the number one thing is community. I really did love the community and do love the friends that I gained through that experience. So I, I would definitely not trade that. And uh, looking back in general, what would you say was some of the most negative or harmful things about being part of these communities? Um, oof. I think, again, I often felt like I made myself feel small. I made myself smaller to fit into the boxes that people wanted me to fit into. I remember, like, thinking about, like, the Proverbs 31 woman. And, you know, my my dad used to always quote us Proverbs 31 as a kid for, like, why we needed to dress a certain way, why we needed to act a certain way. And I just still to this day feel, like, intense anxiety about how loud I am, how I'm outspoken, how I'm too much, how I'm too opinionated, how I'm too outspoken how I'm too I don't know like annoying I find I like always have this fear that people find me annoying and I think a lot of that came from being in Christian circles where I was told I like didn't have the grace that like a godly woman has I don't have the the patience or the like softness that a godly woman should have I remember watching like Gone with the Wind. And I don't know if you've seen the movie. It has tons of problems. You probably shouldn't watch it if you haven't seen it. But there's two characters. There's Scarlet and there's this other character. I think her name is Melanie. And Scarlet's like, for all of her problems, is like a outspoken, forthright female. And the other woman is this like soft, weak woman. And I watched that movie and I wanted to be the soft, weak woman because the church told me that's who you should be. That's who a good, godly woman is. She is submissive. She is gentle. She is gracious. She is patient. And I I think the biggest thing was just this mental idea that, like, I'm too much and I'm not who I'm supposed to be. And I, my feelings are too much. My opinions are too much. I'm too angry. I'm too loud. And I think a lot of that came from my experience with Christianity and like the messages I continually got from HCFA, from crew, from my father, my childhood. And I think I'm still dealing with those messages playing themselves in my head all the time. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing about sexism is like, you can, there, there's like, there's a comfort in it, you know, like there's this idea of like, oh, all women are like this. And so we're all going to be like happy and friendly together. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. And I wanted, like, I wanted to be that perfect church girl. Yeah. You know, like perfectly sweet and kind and pretty and, but like not, not too opinionated. And I never was. And I, 
still am not. <laughs> well, speaking of speaking out, would you give us like a, uh, a, a recap of uh, you wrote this letter this summer? What was what was more recent involvement with this group? Yeah, so recently, um, yeah, I've engaged with HCFA quite a bit as an alum. I and HCFA has an alumni like email list. So we we talk about a lot of different things, but there have been a few like heated conversations about race and racism. And I think those um, definitely came up more like this past year than in the past. And to be honest, as an undergrad, we never talked about race or racism, really. Um, we definitely had that sort of like racial unity message, I'm sure, where we were told like, we all just need, we're all brothers and sisters in Christ. Love covers over a multitude of sins sort of thing. Um, but this summer after the Black Lives Matter protests and the death of George Floyd, uh, Christian Union released a statement that was just very like tepid and underwhelming and was not in any way acknowledging the systematic nature of racism and the church's role and especially the white church's role in upholding that system. And like famously, Martin Luther King Jr. asked the director of crew to march with him in Selma and the crew director said, no, it was too controversial. What um, a history, what a legacy. That's where we're coming from. Um, and like, yeah, the church is just really bad on this issue and has gotten worse. And I think like under Trump's America, like it has become really clear. But anyway, we wrote a letter, um, a group of alumni got together and Christian Union has a lot of influence in the world of like Christianity and has a lot of well-connected Christian followers and donors. So we had this idea that like, maybe if we could get Christian Union to like acknowledge systemic racism and commit to doing something about it within their ministries, that like that could have knock-on effects. And it was worth trying to have that conversation and leveraging our role as alumni. So we wrote a letter about our experience and what we saw in HCFA and, you know, our own kind of personal reckoning with how we had engaged in like racism and the upholding of whiteness within Christian Union and within HCFA. And we got it signed. We spent like weeks composing this letter. We got it signed by like hundreds of alums and we really I mean, we really even wrote that letter strategically toning down some of the language to try to like get to Christian Union and they they ignored us for weeks. They kind of tossed us off to like an alumni coordinator who was very nice, but like didn't really have the power to do anything. And we really pushed to get a meeting with or a response from Matt Bennett, the founder. And we even um, proposed a, a prayer meeting because we thought that might sort of speak to his desires. And he eventually responded. And the long and short of it was that he wasn't interested in engaging in the social gospel because he thinks it would uh, detract from their mission. And and he believes that like racism is something we just need to individually like repent for and our hearts will be changed. 
And yeah, I think like that experience was kind of the final nail in the coffin of my formal relationship with Christian Union. I I really hoped that maybe we could leverage that to make campus ministries a better place for students who are currently in them. Like I said, there are some really good things I got out of HCFA and it would be great if we could preserve those things and make other things a little more open or better. Um, but they were just really not open to hearing it um, and really not open to hearing any new beliefs. And so, yeah, that was kind of my final decision to just walk away. And and I, yeah, I don't really formally associate with Christian Union anymore as a result, because I just realized like they were not ultimately open to change and didn't have the same values that I have anymore. Would you be able to give a, a short explanation of this term, the social gospel? Yeah. So my understanding, I only learned this term because of this letter, but my understanding is that the founder of Christian Union believes that like he cited an example of a ministry, a youth uh, missions ministry um, that kind of got sidetracked with doing too many like social things. They wanted to like solve social issues. And as a result, their ministry eventually crumbled and, and disbanded. And I think the idea is that he believes that American Christianity is being pulled too much towards solving social issues and that we need to be more spiritual and more prayer and fasting focused. And that most issues or all issues probably can be solved spiritually through prayer, through seeking God, um, rather than through like concrete action or concrete change. Um, which as a side note, I think it's interesting because his whole ministry is dedicated at getting people into the halls of power so that we can make change. So there's clearly an admission somewhere in that model that the halls of power are where change gets made, um, which I think really conflicts with this idea that we should be doing nothing systematically or systemically rather about racism. So yeah, I, I think that's the general idea um, in his mind of what the social gospel is. Yeah, that's a really good point that you made that like, he said that it's a, maybe a criticism of like a methodology or strategy, but actually that is his strategy. But his goal is like to uphold white supremacy. <laughs> Yeah, I'm sure he would say it in not so few words, but yeah, he's a he's an interesting guy. He's very he's very highbrow spiritual. He like fasts for 40 days every year. He he wrote this he makes HCFA students do this Bible study where you learn about fasting and you learn about speaking in tongues and you learn about the fact that you should go to at least three Christian conferences a year if you're a real Christian. So he's very like traditional, high-minded, rule-following, like Christian type. Um, so he very much has that mindset that like problems can be solved through like high-brow spirituality. Taking a step back a little bit. How do you see the world differently now versus when you were involved when you were in college and involved in HCFA? 
a lot of ways. A, a lot of ways I see the world differently. A lot of ways I see it the same. I think I've always been pretty like justice oriented and had kind of a passion for those who have been marginalized. And that's a big reason why I went into education. I think I can summarize it in like two ways. The first is I now realize I'm not that important. And I'll explain what I mean by that in a second. But also that I am valuable. So first, I'm not that important. Like we talked about, there's this mindset in like Christian circles that like the things you do have to be like God inspired. And we are this chosen creation created by God to do special works and that everything that happens to you is because God willed it. Like you got into Harvard because God willed it, not just because you like happen to be lucky and be born to like certain parents and have certain opportunities and like, great, you got into Harvard and Harvard's just a school. There's this like spirituality to everything that happens that makes it feel more important than it is. And that makes you feel like a deep sense of shame when you like mess up at something because you are important and you have a job to do. And if you mess it up, there are like souls that hang in the balance. Um, And I think the freedom of realizing that like, I'm not that important in the grand scheme of creation, creation, what am I saying? The universe, Um, see the language lives on in me. Um, In the grand scheme of the universe is really freeing. Like I am just a human being on this rock in the middle of the universe. And at one point that thought was really scary to me. And now it's like beautiful. Like I can look around and I love like hiking and camping and I look at these like granite faces in Yosemite and I'm like that existed way before I ever existed and it's going to keep existing long after I exist and it's beautiful. And I love that I like get to be here and see it and I'm going to like take advantage of that. And I I like that. I, I feel freed by the fact that like, I'm going to do the best I can, but like at the end of the day, if I mess up, it's okay. If I'm not perfect, it's okay. If I can't carry the world on my shoulders, it's okay. Cause that's, I don't need to. And on the other hand, like I'm valued, like I don't need to, I don't need to tell myself that I'm like too much or too little or need to fit into a certain box. I can like be who I am and like, yes, I want to love people and be a good person. And like, I still get lots of anxieties about like not measuring up, not being in a good enough teacher or a good enough friend or a good enough human. But like, I am valued by the people who care about me. And like, I have something to contribute to the world and I can like be who I am and I don't need to crumple myself up to fit in the box of like what a good Christian woman looks like. So I think like those two things have really shifted my view of myself and my view of my role in the world um, and helped me like reduce some of my existential anxiety about like when I was a Christian, I felt a lot of stress about the idea of like hell and people going there. And that like, if I really believe this, I need 
like I need to constantly be trying to save people because that's terrible. Um, and I, I think still think it's really weird that a lot of people are Christians and seem to not think about it at all um, when that's like a crazy thing to believe. But yeah, I think that's been freeing. And I think I've just gotten a little more like calm about life and yeah. Um, I don't know. My, my younger brother died this year and I think that was when I like really realized that I wasn't a Christian anymore because my younger brother wasn't a Christian and um, he actually died as a result of suicide, which when I was a Christian was something that I believed was like a mortal sin. And I think had I, had I thought about going through that like 10 years ago, it would have been like devastating and something I couldn't live with because of what I believed. And it obviously was devastating and like really hard in a lot of ways, but because I believed that like, because I can now believe that like he is at peace and he's not somewhere suffering eternally, I can feel like peace about it. I know that like I'm the one who is suffering as a result of his death, but he is not. Um, and that actually helps me to like confirm like, I'm not a Christian because I'm a, I like don't believe I'll see my brother again. And I like am sad about that, but I feel peace with it. So I think like that direct experience with confronting, like, what do I believe about the afterlife kind of finalized what I was already headed towards in a lot of ways. Yeah. Wow. Thank you for sharing. Yeah. Um, so you can choose how you want to answer, answer this and sort of what you want to focus on. Um, but for this idea of radical healing, um, how would you define radical healing for yourself? Like, what does that look like for you? Or we also had someone say like, I have, you know, I haven't healed, you know? <laughs> so, so again, not to fall into that trap of like, oh, I was bad and now I'm okay. <laughs> but, you know, what what does radical healing look like to you? Yeah, I think, I think for me, I have to get to a place where I can take the good and the bad and like not be angry anymore. I don't know. It's really easy for me to just be angry and to blame institutions or people for like all the messiness and instead for me to just say like I I have come to like a place of peace and I have like set the boundaries I need to set and I'm gonna move forward um and this is not going to have such a hold over my life I'm not gonna let it hold my life anymore um so I think like being able to step out of Christian community in some ways has been really healing for me because I finally said like this there was a time in my life when I felt it, like if I said I wasn't a Christian I would lose my anchor I would be unmoored I would just be tossed around in like the waves of life and I was terrified of letting go um and I think I finally come to a place where I'm okay with letting go I don't feel scared of it. And I don't feel like the people who I care about are going to reject me because of it. I've set 
the boundaries I need to set with the people I need to set them. And I think just continuing down the path of like accepting who I am and finding ways to engage with the things I care about in the, in a non-Christian framework is important to me because I don't want to throw out the baby with the bathwater, so to speak. And say, well, okay, since I don't believe in God anymore, I guess I can't have any morals or something like that. So I think it's been important for me to also find ways to like hold on to the things I care about that have for so long been embedded in Christianity and find ways to embrace those things outside of a Christian framework. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Sorry that this is kind of like a big question, but what you said got me thinking, you know, you obviously do care about stuff. And and you mentioned that you became an educator because you, you know, care about issues of like inequality, you know, access to resources for marginalized populations. Do you see like, do you see a difference in um, how we engage in something like you know, critiquing white supremacy, you know, fighting for equal access to resources coming from like outside of a Christian perspective, you know, as opposed to like coming from a Christian perspective? Uh, Yes and no. I will say yes on the one hand, because for me, it feels different. Um, And for the Christian circles I've been in, it feels different. But I don't want to say it for all Christians, because I think like, for example, the Black church has like a very rich history of like activism and like is it's just not comparable. So I will say from my Christian perspective and like upbringing. Yes. Um, And that's not to say that's because I guess I think for Christians at the end of the day, the answer always came down to like, these problems won't be solved in this world. So like, we just need to rely on the next world. Like, it's not that there weren't really great people or like nice and caring people in the church. And it's not like, people didn't try to do things, but at the end of the day, there was always this thing to lean on that it's okay because like the suffering now will be redeemed in the afterlife. Like we can't solve it. Um, Like the poor will always be among us sort of thing, which was like some weird twisted interpretation of that scripture. Whereas I think in the, in the non-Christian framework, it's like, no, like this world is what we have. This is, this life is what we have. So these issues are urgent. They're urgent because they're affecting us now and they're affecting people who aren't going to get another chance because there's not another life after this, you know? Um, And there's not some like perfectly just savior who will come along and solve our problems. So we need to solve our problems. So I think that like in some ways makes it harder, but also gives us more agency as like people who can change things and should be working to change things in the here and now, because we can't make the excuse of, well, this world is messed up because Jesus hasn't come back, but he's coming and we just need to like keep it, keep ourselves occupied until he gets here, uh, which is the ultimate like, I don't know, shirking of responsibility in some ways. So yes, that is in my experience why I've seen 
that's not to say that there are not churches or people in the church who are very active in the here and now. Yeah. Yeah. That totally makes sense. And that definitely like, I feel, you know, I feel like I have also experienced that similar difference. You put it very well. Thank you. (laughs) Oh, oh yeah. Um, Resources. So you mentioned that there's some Instagram accounts that you like. Yes. Um, I don't, they're not like, so I am a sarcastic and flippant individual. So I like to deal with my, uh, healing by making jokes. Um, so I follow these Instagram accounts. I don't know what all of their names are. One of them is called dirty rotten church kids and it's great. Oh yeah. 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 So Um, one of our listeners, uh, recently recommended it to me. I strongly recommend it. Yeah, there's another one called Your Favorite Heretics that I like. But I found this like a really comforting Instagram because they just kind of like make like funny jokes about things, but also like call out real things while they're doing it. Um, And it's kind of like, like I said, how I felt about HCFA where it was familiar. It feels familiar to me. It's like a whole group of people who have been through like the same mental process as I have. So that feels like comforting that someone knows what it's like. The other thing is this is, this is not like a strong recommendation, but I like, this was somewhat helpful to me recommendation. There's a book called Searching for Sunday by Rachel Held Evans And I, she ends up like returning to the church in the end of the book, which I did not relate to, but the beginning of the book, when she talks about like her feelings about the church and her, her experience of like calling things out within the church and getting back certain answers and of like being, having doubts. And she talks about the, the grief of losing her faith. And I found that really helpful because I had, never heard someone talk about losing their faith like grief and I like deeply related to it. Um, So I thought that the first half of that book was really, really relatable and like validated that I wasn't the only one who felt this way. Yeah. Yeah. I got really into her when I was in college and I always thought she was a cool person, such a tragic sudden death but she really did a lot and I think it has been involved in a lot of people's journeys like even if it's not exactly the same like I feel like she has helped others go through a lot (laughs) yeah yeah I haven't beyond that I think this has been a long and not very straightforward like path for me so I think it's mostly been kind of a slow slow fade um so there haven't been like particular resources that Mm -hmm. i've read yet but i'm starting to kind of get into reading different resources and engaging with different folks who have been through similar things nice juju did you ever get into rachel held ovens i did yes her last book it's like it's about reading the bible kind of retellings of of a lot of bible stories and i was actually in this like facebook book launch early access readers group um so i was reading that book most recently so yeah i appreciated um her perspectives especially as a woman could relate to a lot of what she shared yeah i like that impacted me too yeah yeah 
she was just like very chill. Like she's just like, this is me. I'm not better than anyone, you know, but I don't know. I just, yeah. Like she was yeah. very comfortable with herself, but like very like we're all living our own lives. <laughs> yeah. Felt like she could be my friend. Wow. Shall we wrap things up? Anything else you'd like to add, Karen? Yeah, I don't know. I think just that like I at one point I was feeling really afraid to lose my faith because it was so central. And I was worried that like everything in my life would fall apart. My marriage was based on my faith. My closest friendships were based on my faith. I got married under the assumption that like we can make this marriage work because we have the same beliefs about Christianity. Um, And I was worried everything would fall apart if like that central thing fell apart. And I just want to say to everyone out there who might be afraid of the same thing happening that it has not. And I feel happier now than I did before. Um, and I'm still married and I'm happy in my marriage and I still have my friends and they have not changed their opinion of me as far as I know. So that's all. Yeah. It's just, it's been a long process and it, it feels kind of like scary and intimidating when faith was like overwhelmingly the biggest part of my life for the first 25 years of my life, but now I'm okay. I, I still am me without Christianity. What a testimony. (laughs) Amen. And a woman. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you, Karen. Thank you. Thank you so much. And you shared so beautifully. And I know there'll be people interested in hearing and who will be really that that they will find a lot of value in what you shared and can resonate a lot. HCF. Yeah, I know my story is a little all over the place, especially maybe for your usual. Um, I know your your podcast focuses a lot on the like missionary experience, so that's a little different. But yeah, I think the story of just like growing up Christian and and <laughs> slowly leaving that world, I think, will resonate with a lot of people. And so many missionary kids were involved in campus ministries too, so it's so much of it is relatable. The common stuff of the christian experience yes all right well i appreciate you guys interviewing me and asking me questions and it was great to hear some of your thoughts as well Um, it's been fun (laughs) cool thanks for listening to this episode of radical healing podcast This podcast is made by Erica Hughesby and Julianne Picardo with music by Marlos Townsend. You can find and subscribe to Radical Healing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. For information and more resources, check out our website, RadicalHealingPod.com, and follow us on Instagram at RadicalHealingPod. We're always looking for more people who would like to share their story, whether it's about the CAJ experience, growing up international, or Radical Healing. If you'd like to get in touch, send us an email at RadicalHealingPod at gmail.com.